our gracious God, our heavenly Father, you speak to us and your word is amazing. And we just wanted to pray that you give us ears to hear and listen to you now. And not just hear you, but put into practice what we live. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Have you ever read a book or seen a movie or watched a TV show where it's, it's kind of good, but the ending is just a letdown? It can ruin the whole experience, it can't, when this happens. Because um, the, the ending of a story is important. So uh, I've been reading a little bit of Stephen King recently. You, you might know him. He kind of writes scary books that get made into movies. So he's written The Shining, It, Pet Cemetery. He also actually wrote The Shawshank Redemption, which is not a terribly scary movie. But anyhow, a, a prolific author, written stacks of books. He'd made stacks and stacks of money. But the big criticism of Stephen King is he can write a really good story, but the endings often just aren't that good. So a while ago, I was reading this book. Uh, It's called Under the Dome. And it's about a town that gets shut off from the rest of the world by this uh, invisible dome that gets placed over it. Nobody knows how it got there. And so you you get to meet all the characters in the town. There's the uh, the pompous mayor, his dull but sporty son. There's the single mum who's doing it tough. There's the drifter who was passing through town but got stuck because of the dome. And you see how these different kind of people cope and how the stress of being stuck under the dome changes them, how they end up forming into little groups and these groups clash with each other until the town kind of goes to war with itself in the end. But all through the book, the question is, well, how did the dome get here? Who put it there? And, and how do we get rid of it? I'm going to give you a spoiler now. So if you don't want to hear, block your ears. But in the end, you find out it was aliens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? You, your response tells us everything. Aliens put the dome there. And in the end, they have compassion on some of the people in the town. So they get rid of it. And it's just a letdown of an ending, isn't it? Like... You want it to be something more than that. Yeah, I enjoyed the book for the most part, but in the end, my lasting impression is this is not his greatest work, despite what someone says on the front cover. See, endings are important because they leave a lasting impression on us. And today we reach the end of our series. We, each, we reach the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, this, this pair of books from the Bible. We've been going through them recently. They tell the story of the Jews returning to their homeland. You see, when the Babylonians were the world power, they'd captured the Jews and they'd taken them off to Babylon in exile. But then the Persians took over as the superpower of the world and and they let the Jews return back to their homeland. And that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. What is it like when the Jews return to their homeland? We've seen lots of ups and downs, haven't we? But today we finish our time in these books. So how does it end? And what's the lasting impression it leaves us with? And what's that got to do with us today? Well, let's not waste any time. Things end on a high note. I mean, you kind of would have seen this in the last little while. Last, last week we went through chapters 8 to 10. We saw there in chapter 8, the people were so committed to hearing God speak. In chapter 9, they they realized they had sinned, 
And so what they did is they stopped and they prayed to God. They confessed their sin and they asked for his mercy. And then in chapter 10, they promised to make changes. Now, we didn't get to read much of this last week. So I'm going to get Pip to come up. Pip's going to read a part of the Bible now. And we're going to hear that the Jews make some promises to God uh, to change. Hello, everyone. I'm Pip. And I have the pleasure of reading the Bible for us now. Um, We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 to 33. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters, who are able to understand... All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, uh, Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our, of the Lord, our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us, or take their daughters. For our sons, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. Thanks, Pip. We'll hear a little bit more uh, from Nehemiah in a moment. But as it goes on here, the Jews promising to change now we might hear this and it might not sound like they're promising very important things here but these changes are actually really big because they're changing their ways they're promising now to live in ways that are pleasing to god to ways that god wants them to live this is a really high moment in israel's history now today we're also covering today covering chapters 11 to 13 And in 11 to 13, things keep going well. In chapter 11, the people come to live in Jerusalem again. See, most of the houses in Jerusalem got destroyed when the Babylonians took over. Uh, And and now that the Israelites are back in the land, now the Jews are back in the land, they're living in the surrounding villages. But they come together in chapter 11 to rebuild the houses in the city and live in there again. In chapter 12, they finally dedicate the wall. The first six chapters of Nehemiah had been about how the people rebuilt the city walls. They finished in chapter 6, and in chapter 12, they dedicate the wall. They celebrate and they praise God for it. Everything is rosy. All is going well. We're ending the book on a really high note. And so what's the lasting impression we get then? What's the big takeaway when the book ends like this? Well, perhaps we see in the ending here uh, a great victory for God's people. And so the takeaway for us is, 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 is to have that victory through life. You know, march through life with a sense of victory over every obstacle that stands in our way. Because after all, didn't Jesus win the victory for us? 
Or perhaps we see the ending here as one where the job is done. And so the key takeaway for us is, well, we've got to put up our feet now. The job is done for us. After all, hasn't Jesus done everything for us? But before we get too carried away, before we get there, chapter 12 is not the end. Chapter 13 is yet to come. In chapter 13, we find out that Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem. When we first met Nehemiah in chapter 1, he was living in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. And he got permission from the king to come back to Jerusalem to, to, to rebuild the wall. And now in chapter 13, 12 years after he first came to Jerusalem, he's going back to Susa, back to the king, just like he said he would. But while he's away, things do not go well in Jerusalem. Things do not go well for God's people. So Pip's going to come back up and read for us a part of chapter 13. And we'll hear that these things are not going well. Thanks, Pip. Before this, Eliashib the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers as well as their contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's house, household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then... Uh, I put back into the, them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings um, and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Le Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked them, rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called to them together and stationed them at their posts. While Nehemiah is back in Susa, things start to crumble. Not walls and houses, but the people and their spiritual life, their walk with God, their worship of God. That's what's crumbling. We're not told how long this takes, how long it takes from, from ne how long Nehemiah is in Susa, but sometime later he gets permission to come back to Jerusalem again, and when he's there, he's confronted with this sad reality. You know, it looked like things had ended on such a high note in chapter 12, but then in chapter 13 we see the people, and, and they've failed to press on in living wholeheartedly for God. The ending is a letdown. I want to just walk through chapter 13 with us now. We'll cover what Pip read and a little bit more afterwards. In verses 4 to 9, we see that a guy called Tobiah was allowed to live in the temple. And we might ask, well, 
so what? So what if he's living there? What's it matter? Really, there are kind of three problems with this. Firstly, Tobiah was not a Jew, and so he wasn't actually allowed to be in those parts of the temple. Secondly, he's an enemy of the Jewish people. He had opposed them when they went to rebuild their city walls. He ridiculed and mocked them. He even had tried to have Nehemiah killed at one point. And thirdly, uh, the room that he's been given, well, it's supposed to be a storeroom. It's supposed to be a place to keep things so that the Jews can worship their God in the temple. But instead, there's a guy living here. Things are not going well in Jerusalem. But that's not all. In verses 10 to 14, we hear why those storerooms were partially empty in the first place. You see, the Jews were supposed to bring uh, things to the temple, things to give the Levites some food, because the Levites worked there, they couldn't go and farm their own food. Uh, they were supposed to bring their offerings to God that would be in the temple there, but the Jews weren't doing this. So the Levites had to move out. They had to go back to the farm to look after themselves, and the regular worship of God was not happening. But it's not just problems in the temple. We find out in verses 15 to 22, the people are breaking the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was, and it still is, a key part of Jewish identity. Particularly back then, in a world where most people were farmers and had to farm to get their food, not working for a whole day was a pretty strange thing to do. But this was a key thing that identified the Jews as God's people. It's what God had told them to do. It was a reminder to them that they get their food not because they work hard, but because of God who provides for them. But here, what are the people doing on the Sabbath? Whatever they want. They're making wine. They're bringing in their crops. They're buying and selling stuff with each other. There are even other nations nearby, and it seems like they hear what's going on, and, and so they join in. They, they bring their fish and their seafood to come and sell it on the Sabbath in Jerusalem. They're breaking the Sabbath. And if that's not enough, we see another problem in verses 23 to 31. An old problem actually re-emerges again. We see here, again, there's interracial marriage. And God has told the Jews not to do this. Now, we hear this today and we think, oh, come on, God, that's a bit racist of you. There's nothing wrong with interracial marriages. Uh, but before we get too carried away, I want to say we did kind of answer this question a, a few weeks ago. Um, so if you want a, a, a longer answer, go, go online, find our website, and uh, find the, it's the third talk in the series from Ezra chapter 9. But here's the short answer. It, God is not being a racist here because this isn't about race at all. It's actually about religion. It's about not participating in the religious practices of the neighboring people, which were evil, which involved things like child sacrifice. God does not want his people to be part of that. But when they marry these other nation, people from these other nations, that's what goes on. You participate in what they do as well. And the shocking thing here in, in Nehemiah chapter 13 is it's not just that the people are doing this, but, but priests are getting in on it too. Here, here are the people who are supposed to lead the Jews. They're supposed to be uh, people who serve God and, and give an example to others of how to serve God, but... Here, they're involved in these evil religious practices themselves. 
There'd been so much good stuff going on in Nehemiah. It seemed like we were heading for a good ending. And chapter 13, and he's just such a letdown. Imagine being Nehemiah here. Wouldn't you be banging your head against the wall? Come on, why, why, why? Why don't these people ever learn? In fact, look at Nehemiah's response in verse 25. He says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I don't think this is quite an example to follow, friends. Uh, we're not going to employ someone in our church to do this. You know, you've got the pastor for maturity, the pastor for mission, the pastor for beating up people who don't do that. Yeah, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but it shows the seriousness of the situation, right? This is not something to take lightly. They've compromised themselves. And now they're following God, but only half-heartedly. So Nehemiah comes back from Susa and he sees here that people have failed to press on in serving God. And each time Nehemiah sees something that's wrong, he makes a change. He tries to set things back on track again. He kicks Tobiah out of the temple. He rebukes the officials. He reinstates the temple tithes. He makes sure the Sabbath is upheld. He even locks the city gates so the people coming from a distance can't come in to sell their seafood. And you can imagine what that smelt like the next morning, right? He makes sure the priesthood remains pure. Nehemiah does what he can to effect change. But each time he does, he also prays. And it's a similar prayer each time. It goes like this. He prays, remember me, my God. Then verse 14, remember me for this, my God. Verse 22, remember me for this also, my God. Verse 31, remember me with favor, my God. Now, this is not a prayer of arrogance. It's not as if Nehemiah is saying, hey, God, look at me. Look how good I am. Look at what I'm doing, God. I hope you're noticing because I want a good place in heaven. It's, it's not that. It, it, it's a prayer of dependence. It's a recognition that Nehemiah himself he can't bring about lasting change. After all, just look what's happened in the past. He's tried and he's tried to set these people right, but, but he can't make lasting change happen. And so he's praying to God. He says, God, remember me. Remember this work that I'm doing. Uphold these people. Please, would you bring about this change in their lives? Help them push on to live for you. But the prayers also show us who Nehemiah is looking to please. If he just wanted to be uh, like a popular leader, he wouldn't worry about making all these changes, right? And they're difficult social changes, spiritual changes. If you're, if you're worried about popularity, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bother with any of this. You just let the people get on with doing what they want to do. But clearly, his priority is not to be a popular leader. His prayers show this. His prayers show us who his audience is, who he's playing for. He's playing for an audience of one. He's seeking to please God, first, last, and everywhere in between. Leadership can be a hard thing. You've got to make decisions and... Not everyone's going to agree with you. Not everyone's going to be happy with you. 
So, so who do you choose to keep on side? And, and who do you choose to, to be upset with you? It's the politician's dilemma, isn't it? They, they need people to vote for them, but each time they make a decision, they put some people offside. So, 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 so what do you do? Nehemiah is very clear at what drives his leadership. He has an audience of one. He's seeking the good of the people, yes. But he's seeking to please his God. And that says something really important for those of us who are leaders here. Perhaps you're a leader by, by, by being a leader of one of our serving teams in church. Perhaps you're a leader in your workplace. Perhaps you're a leader at your kid's school. Perhaps you're a leader within your family or something else entirely different. If you're a leader, we're kind of provoked to ask this question. Ultimately, who are you choosing to please with the way you do things? Is it God that you want to please? That's not a, a question just for leaders, though, is it? That's really a question for all of us. In life, friends, who, who do we want to please? Who is the audience that we're playing for? And this really all comes back to the ending of Ezra and Nehemiah. It is a letdown. Here are God's people and they're compromising themselves. They are not wholehearted for God. They're thinking, you know, it doesn't really matter if Tobiah lives in the temple, does it? Oh, it doesn't really matter if we forget about the Sabbath. Don't get your knickers in a knot. In fact, it's just easier if we're like everyone else in some ways. And it screams out to us. When we see this, it screams out to us that they've lost something here. They've, they've lost a love of God, a passion for Him, to live for Him. And so we walk away from Ezra and Nehemiah, this pair of books. And, and the impression that we're left with is one of sadness. It's a letdown. Here are a people who were going so well, but they just didn't push on. They grew half-hearted. What would you think if I told you I was in a marathon race yesterday? In fact, this week I've been in four marathon races. Pretty impressive, right? My nose is the same length as it always was. Thank you, man. <laughs> I'm guessing you don't believe me, Merritt. <laughs> but it is. It's true. You know, I was in. I was in a marathon. I went jogging four times this week. I was in a marathon. I just chose to not finish the marathon each time. In all seriousness, starting a marathon, it doesn't really matter. Anyone can start a marathon, right? Finishing the marathon, though, that's different. It's similar with the Christian faith, friends. Anyone can say they're starting to follow Jesus. But what matters is keeping on going. Finishing, not compromising, but persisting, pushing on wholehearted for the Lord Jesus. And that's really the key thing for us from this passage today. 
is to keep going as a follower of Jesus. See, the lasting impression we get from this book, it's, it's, it's one of sadness. Don't you feel the letdown here? After everything was going so well, here were people so quick to compromise, so quick to go half-hearted, not to push on. And as we read this, we've got to be thinking to ourselves, let's not be like that. Let's not be like that. Let's push on. Let's grow. Let's, let's seek to flourish as followers of Jesus. And I could talk about this for a while, but I don't want to. So earlier this week, I sat down with Ed and Judy from our church. Ed, Ed's, you've seen Ed up here playing the ukulele before. And I asked them about this kind of stuff, about what has been tricky for them and how they've pushed on. And I, why don't you check out the video and hear what they have to say. I was born in England, but we came to Zimbabwe when I was three. So basically, as far as I'm concerned, I'm Zimbabwean. Born in Zimbabwe, so I'm a, a white, a white African. And it was probably really only when Ed and I got married and he was on call-ups in Zimbabwe where the, where the war was raging at that stage and I was very aware that I, I, needed, I, I needed something to hold on to. I needed something to hold on to. And it was then that I thought, okay, Lord, well, you know, basically, if you're real, show me sort of idea. And um, then, then, like Judy said, when we, you know, we got married and kids and then we started going to church. Judy and the kids went first with Sunday schools and things like that and choirs and bits and pieces and then you know I, I dragged along and eventually <laughs> became part of part of my being. The church we had been going to for many years, maybe twenty years. Thirty. Uh, gradually it was there were things happening there which weren't of God so eventually we, we, we left there but that, that was a major challenge um, and they say, you, you begin to, to really question you know is there anything in this if, if people are bending it so badly now, it could well have gone either way, that we found somewhere else to, to worship. We tried various other places, but we could have just gone, well, that's it. We're done with, we're done with, we're done with God, which would have been, in inverted commas, easy to do and say, okay, well, if that's, if that's what you know, God's about, Christianity's about, well, then we don't want a part of it. So we, we really had to, in Afrikaans word, circle, really struggle through that. And, and it, was, it, it was, it was incredibly hard. It, it, we could have just easily just walked away and there were a lot of people who did just that, which is really, really sad. I mean, we, we, we always have our sort of 
devotional time and prayer together at home. Yeah, so that's that carries on. Uh, yeah, and that's it's absolutely right because even though we were there was quite a sort of bunch of us that got to still stay together <clears throat> and supported each other. Definitely, definitely. You know, we were all what I call in the same boat. So, and that was literally it. That was literally it. You know, there was there was a bunch of us, you know, doing a doing doing the rounds of lunches. of, of lunches. <laughs> lunches as well. Yes, you know, got together, you know, had had lunches and found out how everybody was going. All right, for me, I I would actually be saying to people. It's okay to tell God things are not okay. And also not being scared to ask people, well, be prepared to reveal as much as you want without being, you know, pushed on it. Um, reveal to people that you are doing it tough. And I think sometimes we're a little bit scared to do that. We sort of think that we need to put on the mask that, oh yeah, all's fine, you know, all's well with my world, when when it really isn't. And, and just... I just pray that people have the the confidence to have somebody close to them that they can reveal themselves to and say, listen, I'm doing it really tough. Can you pray for me? Anything mm-hmm. else? Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. I love what Ed and Judy have to say there. What What kept them going? When they could have faded away, gone half-hearted, given up. It was time with God, wasn't it? Ed said, we spent time in devotion, time, in the Word of God, in prayer. For Judy said, we, 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 we pray, you, you can tell God when things are going, when things are hard. And it was other people. Other Christians around them, who cared about their faith, who looked after them and looked to nurture and encourage their walk in the faith, who kept pointing them on the way to go. And and that was Judy's encouragement, wasn't it? That we be a church that does this for each other. Friends, let us push on living for Jesus. Not compromising, not going half-hearted and losing our passion for him, but pushing on seeking to please God with all that we are. Let's be committed to doing that together with one another, urging each other on to do this. Can I pray for us? Our good and gracious Father, we want to say thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who has done everything for us. Thank you that he is good and that living for him is what we're made to do. Please help us keep doing that. When things get hard or when we want to compromise, please keep us wholeheartedly serving you. And we pray that you would use each other so that we will all be pushing on in serving Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.